Hello, I'm Enrique Cerna, and welcome to the KCTS 9 Digital Studios Podcast. The legal battle over President Obama's executive order on immigration reform appears to be headed to the U.S. Supreme Court. This after a federal appeals court said the president's executive actions that are aimed at easing deportation threats for millions of undocumented immigrants must remain blocked. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled two to one that a lower court did not abuse its discretion when it said challengers to the law were likely to succeed in their claim that the programs were unlawful because they didn't comply with the Administrative Procedure Act, a law that sets forward how federal agencies can establish regulations. The Department of Justice disagreed with the ruling and plans to seek review from the U.S. Supreme Court. So how soon might that happen? What does it mean for the many young people known as DREAMers who have been able to gain protection against deportation through DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals? What role will all of this play in the 2016 presidential campaign? Well, we talk immigration now with Jorge Barón, Executive Director of the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project. And Jorge, welcome. Thank you very much, Enrique. So uh, this picture is becoming more and more political and muddled. And this idea now of going to the Supreme Court, which I know the Obama administration probably never thought that they, well, they didn't want to have to do, but now they really have no choice. Right. And I think that the, the problem is that, of course, this is going to be a process that's going to take even more time. And, and I think the dynamic that you have now is that uh, because uh, President Obama sort of waited so long into now his second term to take this action, I think the people who are opposed uh, to the actions that he took uh, realize that in some ways, you know, time, you know, delaying things uh, is on their side. So the longer that this can get pushed off, uh, the harder it's going to be for, for President Obama to implement them. Are you frustrated that he didn't make this more of a priority early on? Absolutely. I think there's a tremendous frustration in the immigrant rights community and the Latino community about the fact that uh, immigration wasn't a higher priority. Uh, and of course, you know, there's a recognition that there are a lot of other policy issues that, you know, healthcare reform was an important priority. But I think some of these things, uh, you know, I, I think in some ways the strategy the administration has had with, with, uh, with immigration um, has just been, you know, a, a strategy that was never going to work because their strategy has been that they had to appear tough on immigration and be, be harsh in order to convince uh, Republicans, particularly in the House, to sort of come to the table uh, to, to pass comprehensive immigration reform. And the problem is that it's, it's, it's a failed strategy because the, 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 those people who are opposed to immigration reform were never going to uh, agree that uh, Obama was being tough enough. And so it was belatedly that he started taking actions on his own that he could uh, administratively. Uh, but of course, again, now it's, 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 it's late in the process. Uh, and unfortunately, it may be in a situation where even if, even if this case you know, gets taken up by the Supreme Court and the administration uh, prevails, uh, it's going to be right before the election and it's going to make it very difficult to implement. The being tough uh, part was really uh, the administration cracking down on deportations. And uh, in fact, uh, I know that it, it was an, uh, a moniker that the president hated being called the uh, quarter in chief, I'm yes. sorry, yeah, yeah, which he really hated. But the fact is, is that that was the, the tack that they took, but it seemed like the Republicans really didn't, it didn't matter. 
Right. And I think that's the thing is that no matter what he had done in, in this area, uh, people were going to say it wasn't sufficient. Um, and in fact, you know, he has deported more people as a, as a practical matter than than, than uh, President Bush did during this, his two terms. And so, uh, you know, that's the problem is that no matter what you do, you're not going to satisfy people for whom, you know, uh, enforcement only policy uh, is the only thing that they're going to be satisfied with who do not want to see undocumented individuals uh, have a path to citizenship. So when you have that, that you know, situation, you're not going to be able to really negotiate. And, and I think that if he had taken the step, and I think in some ways DACA, for me, was, was an example of the right way to do it, which was uh, you know, to be able to bring people out of the, 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 you know, the shadow economy, bring them forth, give them an opportunity. And I think what you see, even with those, those kids now, uh, even though there was a lot of debate and controversy at the time he did that first thing, you notice that you know now it's a little bit even even for example uh, Marco Rubio as a candidate is being very careful because now you know taking away DACA from those kids seems like a harsh thing to do, and I think if the president had done some of the things that he had done much earlier, he would have set up a dynamic that would have actually made it easier for for immigration reform to happen because people would have been been able to see uh, you know who these people are. I think part of the problem with the with with this issue is that it's kind of hidden you know people don't know people know that there's undocumented people but they often don't know that it's the person that's you know working in the restaurant that's the person that's sending the law because everybody has to be quiet about it of course or in the case of daca giving an opportunity for young people to actually become something that maybe no one thought they would ever be and specifically i did a story with a young woman named jessica sparza from Quincy, who I followed for a couple of years uh, and is now practicing as a registered nurse in uh, central Washington in, in a Wenatchee hospital. So, I mean, if you, you've got this great example of what that could do. Absolutely. And, and, if, and if people in the communities, uh, and even in, in, in conservative areas of our state, for example, in eastern Washington, when people start realizing who this is, who this population is, um, then it, you, know, you can throw all the numbers you want, 11 million, you know, 250,000 here in Washington state. But when it becomes about Jessica, right, when it com becomes about this person that I know, um, the, the, there's a shift in perspective and people realize, oh, that's who we we're talking about. And, and I think if, if we're giving opportunities for people to be able to be more open about their situation, I think we're going to have a, a, a dynamic that's going to be different in the conversation. So would you rather have seen him uh, take executive action in that first term? Absolutely. I mean, I think he, he had said that he wanted to push immigration reform the first year of his, of his administration. And when he saw that that wasn't happening, when he saw uh, that, you know, uh, you know, at the time, I remember the debates in the first uh, term, uh, the debate was like, well, you know, doing trying to do the Dream Act is too easy because because that's only for the for the most sympathetic group, right? The the Dreamers, uh, and yet they try to do that, and and the Republicans in the Senate blocked that. Uh, I think that would have been time. You know, he eventually did DACA about a year and a half later, uh, but it, it could have been much earlier, and and things could have happened much earlier. And um, the fact that he delayed things meant that you know now we're in the situation people feel like they can run run out the clock, so to speak. So where do you think this is now? Uh, because um, he has faced uh, setbacks in uh, appeals courts, uh, obviously uh, states, and particularly in the South and Southwest, have challenged all of this. Uh, this Fifth Circuit court that has uh, issued this ruling. Um, is he on the ropes? 
Well, I, I don't know if that, that he's on the ropes. I mean, I think that he still has the opportunity. I think the legal issues are still, um, you know, something that's that's the, 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 the aspect of the, the, the case uh, that was brought. Uh, the arguments that are made by the states are arguments that would really, really change policy tremendously in terms of the states being able to challenge uh, federal policy. So I, I suspect that if the Supreme Court, uh, I mean, the Supreme Court can decide not to take the case, which is one one thing that could happen because they have the option. I suspect that because this is such a big issue, they will take the case. Um, and then, you know, they're going to have to make a decision. I'm sure it's going to be a close call because the, the court is, of course, very closely divided. Uh, but I think that the administration has the better legal argument on this and so that they will prevail. Uh, the challenge is that then we're going to have a situation where the Supreme Court may give the go-ahead in late June of next year, and it'll take some time to ramp up the program. And in the meantime, um, you know, the, the doors will open, but it will, they will open when you in the middle of this very heated presidential election where one candidate you know, surely will say, you know, I'm going to undo this program, and the other candidate is going to say, I'm going to continue it. And so whether people at the time are going to be willing to go forward and, and put themselves out there is is going to be a tough situation. I, I suspect, you know, as happened, the same situation happened with DACA in 2012, if you remember. And and I think people were still willing to go forward in that case. Um, and I think people will uh, still apply even in those circumstances. But it's going to be um, it's going to be a much more challenging um, a situation. Uh, let's step back. OK, so what if the Supreme Court decides not to take the case? What does that mean? Well, the, if the Supreme Court doesn't take the case, it means that the Fifth Circuit decision stands, and that means that the program will be will be on hold until the the administration. The next option the administration would have would be to actually, you know, go through the notice and comment period that the that the uh, Fifth Circuit found the, the the administration had not gone through. So technically, that's still something they can do. But again, that's another process that will take several months to go through. Um, and I think the administration, and I think it, rightly so, is it, wanting to stand by the principle of, you know, we're not required to do this. And so they want to vindicate that that principle. But I think if there were, if the Supreme Court doesn't take the case, then I think they're going to have to that they'll probably have to go through that process. But again, that means that they're still, you know, running out the clock. That's going to mean that it's going to be delayed until until sometime next year. When the president issued his executive order and he established DACA, uh, which gave many of these young people an opportunity to, you know, get a driver's license and to work and to have some um, not fear about being deported. Do you still have young people looking to try to sign up under DACA and go through that process, or is, is it stalled, Danny? No, I think, I, and well, the challenge has been that there's been a lot of confusion for people, right? Because the original DACA program from 2012 has not been affected by this court case, and it's still going strong, and people are still applying. Um, and we're now, you know, close to 700,000 people across the country who have applied. And the, the, the challenge has been that, of course, people have been hearing about this case and saying, like, oh, it's not going to happen. Uh, or, or this is, I mean, I've even had immigration attorneys ask me, I thought, I thought this put DACA on hold. And we've been having to explain yeah. to people, no, 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 that, that, that the original DACA is not affected by this case. Jeez, if attorneys can't figure it out. I know. That's, well, that's, that's when I got really concerned. And yeah. so, so I think the, 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 we've been trying to make sure that the community and, you know, both the, the impact the community, but, but the community more broadly as well, understand that the original DACA program is still um, going forward and people are applying, both the people initially who, apply, who can apply now, who meet the criteria, as well as the people who got the original work permits, 
who you know only got them for two years and so they're now having to renew those work permits so all of that's still happening we're running legal clinics around the state and people are still coming forward some people who who did not uh who were afraid to apply initially but who've seen that the program has been working and that their friends have been getting work permits and doing well uh, are coming forward and then a lot of obviously the renewals as well but but there's no doubt that i think this this uh this whole rhetoric and the and the um the, the legal case uh, I'm sure has led to some people who are on the sidelines to stay, stay you know, stay away because uh, because understandably so when they hear this idea that all of these things are going to be undone, they're afraid of putting themselves forward. Uh, but we do, you know, and we and we let people make their own choices when they come and ask me, when people ask me what they should do. I say, you know, it's up to you. It's your choice. I try to explain to them. I still think that for most people, uh, if they don't have any of the issues like, you know, criminal history or, or, or problems with immigration in the past, uh, for most people, the benefits are going to outweigh the risks in these circumstances. Um, uh, but, yeah, it's it's been a, a, a difficult challenge with uh, with uh, with all the uncertainty about these things. Explain quickly how DACA works, because there is the process. I mean, I think there's a fee. You have to go through uh, some vetting, don't you, from Homeland Security? Absolutely. So when people uh, come in and, uh, and meet with us in our clinic, we have to tell show them uh, the form that they have to fill out that, you know, as far as immigration forms, it's not as complicated as many other forms, I will say. Um, and, you know, most importantly, they have to be able to show that they've been, they meet the requirements of having lived here since June 2007 uh, and that they entered the country before they were 16. So a lot of that requires documentation. For some, for some, you know, young people, it's going to be a school transcript that shows that they've been in school during that whole time. Uh, but for a lot of other people, it requires a lot more evidence than that. So they submit this packet of information. They send it over to immigration. Uh, you know, we obviously help them put together a packet and they send it to immigration. And then they will be called in for a fingerprint appointment uh, at their local uh, office of immigration. They have to go in, get fingerprinted. They do this uh, photograph that they check against all their databases. So there is a big, you know, uh, background check that is conducted on everybody. And then as long as all of that is approved and immigration agrees that they, you know, they have the proper documentation, then they will be issued um, this letter that says they have deferred action uh, for two years and then they get a work permit as well, which then allows them to get a Social Security card. And so then they're authorized to work and they, they uh, get a lot of benefits in, in a lot of states. Um, one of the big benefits is that they can get a driver's license. Uh, here in Washington State, we were one of the few states that, that allows people, regardless of immigration status, to get driver's licenses. So that hasn't been as much of an impact here. But there are programs, for example, uh, there's a program called the College Bound Scholarship Program here at the state that 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 uh, recently uh, it was clarified that DACA students are eligible for. So there's still limitations. DACA is still limited, you know, benefit. It doesn't provide a path to citizenship. Uh, but there are things that are a, a real benefit. And most importantly, you know, um, you know, people can work. I mean, we've had a number of people in, in our own agency who are now working with us who previously couldn't have because they didn't have work authorization. Yeah. And they also have to pay a fee, don't they? They do. The, yeah. So the fee is $465 for that initial application, and they have to pay the same fee when they when they go to renew. And, uh, you know, that has been definitely a barrier for some people. But uh, we, we, we also actually have some prog programs here in the state. We work with an agency called 21 Progress that's been running these these lending circles. And there's been other agencies that have, have put up lending money to help students for whom that that uh, that uh, fee is a barrier uh, to make sure that they have they have a way to apply anyway. Part of this uh, executive action really would would give the kind of what DACA has given for young people really to many of their parents, right? 
Right. I mean, definitely a lot of the uh, conversation that we had with a lot of the, the kids who are going through the DACA program now is, you know, what about my parents? Uh, because, you know, we often see these mixed status families where you have the, you know, the older kid who came with their parents at a young age, but then the, the siblings were born here in the U.S. And so, um, you know, it's a it's 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 obviously been a benefit to the to the person who gets DACA, but they're still in this situation where they're still afraid because their parents may be living in the same household, or they're worried about the fact that their parents may be deported uh, at some point soon. And so, DACA is uh, you know uh, the, the the program the president announced the so-called DAPA program for parents would be um, would be provide the similar type of protection than than DACA has done for the Dreamers. What do you make of? Um all the rhetoric in the, the presidential campaign about uh, immigration. Obviously, Donald Trump has uh, started the fire there. Um, and others have jumped in in their way. Uh, some have criticized, some haven't. Marco Rubio actually kind of taken this uh, kind of borderline position uh, and actually saying, I believe, that he would repeal DACA. Right. Well, I think the problem is that, you know, the way that our political system works is that you have this dynamic of people having to go through the primary where the people who are most energized in those primary elections, particularly some of the early states, are, are you know, places like Iowa and, and South Carolina in particular. I think New Hampshire is a little bit more moderate, but, but you see this dynamic where they're, they're having to be, you know, more to the right and more extreme. And, and that leads to this, you know, try to be as tough and speak as harsh on immigration um, that, that you know, on the one hand, for some people, it might seem like, well, you know, it's just rhetoric and it's probably they're just, you know, appealing to 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 this to this base in, in, in ways that may be negative, but that doesn't have an impact. But the problem is that it does have an impact um, uh, even right now, because, you know, many of them are actually, you know, in the Senate and and they're having to, like, you know, go out there and make proposals that uh, are, are you know, potentially going to become policy uh, simply to play you know, the politics game. And so it is you know, deeply concerning. It's deeply concerning to me to see that some of the conversations that we're having are about issues like you know, birthright citizenship, whether you know, people who are born in the U.S. Um, should, be, should be U.S. citizens that, that to me have already been decided long ago and, and you know, are enshrined in our Constitution. And so if the debate is happening on that level, you know, we're not even close to then addressing the real issues that I think we need to address right now, uh, like about the status of the people who are here, uh, the, the, you know, 11 million people who are here undocumented. Um, so it is very distressing the way that the conversation has gone the last few months. And how does it play to the folks that you are working with? Well, I think it's, um, you know, it's been disheartening. I mean, in some ways, this year has been this roller coaster, right? Because this, this past year and literally... Uh, you know, on November 20th, uh, the, the, the one-year anniversary of the president's announcement on the executive actions. And, you know, I remember that day there was this, like, high, you know, like the, just the energy of people being excited about the fact that, you know, even though they understood that this was limited and that it was going to be, you know, there was going to be some pushback, you know, this energy that finally there is some positive action and people are getting excited. We did all these community events in December and January. Uh, uh, trying to explain to people what the process would be like, what they needed to do to prepare. And, you know, people were super excited. Um, you know, there was a lot of apprehension, of course, but, but, but they saw this opportunity, this window of opportunity that had opened up all of a sudden. And then, of course, you know, in February, you saw the, uh, the, 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 the injunction, the court case that delayed things. And, and then over the summer, then you start hearing this rhetoric of, you know, who these people are. 
And, you know, I think it's it's one of those things. I think, you know, most people who are working with with people in the undocumented community, you know, so clearly know. And I think even the broader community understood that when, you know, Donald Trump is up there talking about, you know, rapists and, and, and criminals, that 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 wasn't the case. Um, but uh, but I think it, it you know, it really took this, you know, negative energy and, and just this idea that I, you know, I need to hide again, you know, where people are ready to come forward. Now they have to go back to being, you know, this despised community. So it's been really, you know, I think it's been really disheartening and it's been a, an emotional roller coaster for a lot of people in the immigrant community. This, this and year. it flies in the face of the fact that many polls have shown that the majority of Americans think there should be some path to citizenship. And let's let's go back to the '80s and Ronald Reagan, uh, and what he did, you know. Right, and I think that the, the when people, you know, uh, when people ask me about, you know, well, why can't people do things the way that my ancestors did? Uh, I think people forget that the system that we have now is not the system that we had, in, you know, in most decades. We've we've actually, uh, for most of our history, had, uh, you know, for for much of our early history, we didn't have any limits on immigration, right? And then the limits that we had were very based on race and ethnicity, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act and, and, and keeping people from certain countries out. Uh, but even then, you know, when, when there were people who were seen as sort of undesirable, like Italians and East Europeans, you know, there were often ways that people could ultimately get status if they had been here. You know, the, the, you know if you want to call it amnesty, legalization, whatever. But we always had it. You know, people could, you know, if they stayed here for a few years, eventually it would be given an opportunity. So that's been the norm in our history is that we've allowed people to ultimately, you know, have a path to citizenship. Uh, what's what's not the norm is what's happened the last you know 20 years, which has been that we've shut off those opportunities for people to legalize the status. We've actually made it harder for people to legalize their status um, who have, for example, U.S. citizen spouses, and so and so that's what's led to you know the increase in the undocumented population. It's not that people have stopped you know, have, have increased the numbers of people coming here to the country without permission. That's always happened. You know, it's always from the very beginning of our country, people have come here without permit, without some, any kind of formal permission. Uh, but what's happened more recently is that we've made it much more difficult for people to legalize their status. And so I think that, you know, and, and as you said, you know, President Reagan had had the amnesty, you know, President, uh, the first President Bush had, you know, an, an executive action that, that went, you know, uh, extended that. Uh, for relatives of people who have been in the Reagan amnesty. So it's been, you know, it, it's been the norm. And, 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 and most people understand that that's what we're going to have to do. And uh, so it's very unfortunate that right now the politics are such that, that, that that's being prevented. Let's talk about uh, some of the kids that have been caught kind of in the crossfire of all of this. And, and the, the, these are these young kids, immigrant children that uh, have come here in many respects from we, we've heard about this in the last couple of years either from central america coming here on their own uh, either from central america or mexico or whatever and now they find themselves you know facing deportation uh there are some efforts uh, i know that microsoft has got uh, uh had a program that they've gotten involved with to try to provide legal representation for these young kids how many how many young kids are we talking about well, in the state. Nice. Oh, in the state. Um, so we don't. I don't know if we have the total numbers around the state because uh, because they've been the government has been very cagey, and in some ways, in part because there's been litigation on this that actually we have been working on with with some partners across the country to try to get represent to get the the court to actually require the government to provide legal representation. I think it's one of those things that a lot of people are. Uh, as one person who I talked to recently said, you know, it's absurd. Uh, but the absurd situation that we have in our immigration system.
system is that, you know, even children are not entitled to appointed attorneys in immigration court. So they're having to represent themselves uh, in court. Um, and the that's and how do you do that? And the, right, I mean, it's, it's hard enough for an adult to do that. Imagine, you know, a 14, 13 year old uh, having to represent or younger. or younger because one of our plaintiffs in our case was 10. Um, and and so what's happened now, this has been happening for a long time. But I think the reason that it has come to the forefront has been the, as you mentioned, the huge increase in the number of children who've come to the United States. And so in you know, the last, you know, it used to be that roughly between six and 8,000 children came to the U.S. unaccompanied each year. That was kind of the baseline. And then all of a sudden we had this huge increase so that um, in, the, in the fiscal year that ended in, in, in 2014, we had 60, 66,000 uh, children. And the numbers have gone down this past year, but mostly just because the, the our government has been paying the Mexican government to try to intercept the children before they reach our border, not because they're fleeing any less from Central America. And so those children, you know, hundreds of them, I can tell you, have come to Washington State um, and because they've been placed with relatives or family members who are already here. And but they're not, they've been placed here, but they haven't been permission to stay. They're, they're, they're temporarily placed while they finish completing their deportation hearings. And so they're still going down to our courthouse here in Seattle at, at, at uh, 1002nd Avenue where they have to go. And if they don't, if their family who they're staying with can't afford an attorney, then they're going to have to represent themselves and uh, speak on, uh, on their own to the court. Um, so we think this is, you know, completely not a fair situation where you have the government who's represented by an attorney um, that they pay for, but the child has to represent themselves. So we're involved in this litigation, as I mentioned, to try to make sure that all children across the country have uh, legal representation. But in the meantime, that case is, is, is you know, the, the government has been fighting uh, for, for uh, several months now since we filed it last year, and uh, it's still pending. And in the meantime, uh, uh, the program that you mentioned of Microsoft uh, Kind, as well as uh, we ourselves are doing individual cases with children around the state. And so we're trying to help as many kids as we can in the meantime, uh, because they're having to go to court um, and the decisions are being made. And we recently actually, uh, there was a report recently that of, of some um, uh, documents obtained through a Freedom of Information Act request that show that there's thousands of children who have now been ordered deported since, since July 2014 without an attorney. Uh, many of them are kids who maybe didn't even get the notice that they had a hearing. And so, so deportation orders for these children, despite the fact that they don't have attorneys, are happening. Uh, we're doing the best we can, and in, in some ways, we're sort of more fortunate here in Washington State that we have, you know, good resources. Uh, but despite that, I can tell you that there are kids still going unrepresented to our courts here uh, because there's not enough capacity to help them. I mentioned that KIND stands for Kids in Need of Defense, and uh, Microsoft has been involved with that. And um, so it, it's been interesting how they want to actually expand that program. Let's let's talk about the Syrian refugees and, and what's going on uh, there. Uh, of course, there's lots of heated rhetoric now uh, in the fact that uh, a number of gover governors, I can't remember what the number is, anywhere 19 to 25, maybe 30 or whatever, um, have said that they are against uh, trying to resettle any Syrian refugees here uh, in this state. Jay Ansley, the governor, has said, no, that's not going to be the case. We welcome them and all of that. Your take on this. 
Well, it's just incredibly unfortunate that, that um, you know, we're thinking about it this way because I think the most important thing, and of course, you know, after the, the horrific events in, in Paris, uh, and of course, it's important to note that there's, you know, been terrorism, you know, not only in Paris, but in places like Beirut and Baghdad recently. Um, but the bottom line is that in, in all of these situations, you know, it's, it's this, you know, uh, terrorist group that is trying to, you know, change us you know it's trying it, it, it's almost like we're, we're gonna win if we uh, they're gonna win if we if we give in uh and we give up our values and all of this and so of course i can understand that, that a number of people are, are are afraid of 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 terrorism but i think it's important to remember that the people who are fleeing the people who are talking about refugees they're also fleeing terrorism i mean that's the reason that they've had to leave their homes they had to leave these situations and so you know when people ask me about that's well, well, but I'm afraid for my family. And I say, I totally understand that. But think about those people, those families that are fleeing too. They're also in, how would you like if you, if you were in their shoes to be turned away and not be protected? Um, and I think that the, the reality, of course, is that, you know, we have to be honest that, you know, in any human enterprise, it's never possible to do 100% anything, right? I mean, when people say, well, they have to be absolutely sure 100%, you know, that's 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 just not possible. Right. I mean, the, the process, I mean, the refugee process, it's it's the most stringent that you could possibly have because people have to wait two years to go through like multiple background checks. Everything that can be checked is checked. Um, I mean, you know, think about, you know, people who come on tourist visas, people, you know, there's much less checks on that. Are we going to shut our borders and not let anybody ever in even on a tourist visa? No, I think it's just uh, impractical, um, you know. Are, are we going to say, well, are, do, are we 100 percent sure that somebody who gets released from prison is not going to commit another crime? No, I mean, we're never 100 percent sure. And I think we have to be honest about that. Uh, we do the best we can. And we I mean, from my perspective, you know, the delays for the refugee process are so intense for people who are who are in very dire circumstances. Um, so but we already have those in place and we've, we're doing the best we can to make sure um, I, I, I think that we need to understand that we have an, a moral obligation, I believe, uh, to protect people who are in danger. And um, we're already doing too little in many ways um, uh, in terms of protecting people around the world. And we need to, you know, show moral leadership in, in this moment. You know, and I look back at our history, you know, when we, we turned away refugees, you know, before World War II who were fleeing, you know, Germany. And we look back on those those parts of our history in a very negative light now. We say, you know, you know, we should have done something different. And I worry that we're going to be looking back at this period the same way if we if we take the path of, of refusing to protect people. Are you working with Syrian refugees? We're not. So there's a number of agencies here. Uh, you know, our, 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 a lot of our work here in immigration and, and refugee issues gets kind of divided up because, you know, there's some agencies that's, that focus specifically on refugee resettlement. And so there's a number of organizations, many of them um, uh, faith-based organizations uh, like World Relief and Jewish Family Services. There's also organizations like um, uh, like uh, International Rescue Committee that are, that are part of the system that, that works on the refugee resettlement process. And so they're working with those groups. We often end up working with refugees kind of later on in the process when they're trying to access citizenship or, or they're having 
an issue of trying to bring family members from from abroad. Uh, but but uh, some of those other agencies are the ones that are working with the refugee resettlement. We've we've had very few, comparatively speaking, to the to the numbers, um, Syrian refugees across the country, and and only I think a few dozen here in in Washington State. And I think the president had, of course, announced that he was going to increase those numbers, and and that's what's leading to to this to this backlash. You were mentioning to me that. Uh some of these folks that run these organizations, these uh, refugee organizations, suddenly are, are in the spotlight and wondering how to handle these th types of things. And well, turning to you to get some advice. Right, and, and I guess it's unfortunate because, you know, there, I think the, the refugee resettlement process had been such a, you know, non-controversial issue in, in many ways. You know, it had been something that had very bipartisan support, that, that uh, you know, there was a consensus that, you know, we needed to protect people who are fleeing persecution. And so, you know, a lot of these folks have not have not been dealing with this issue of having to defend the program and, and, and being having to be seen as controversial. Um, unfortunately, on, on the immigration side, we've we've we we have had those issues, of course, and there's been a lot of controversy. So we're we're kind of used to having to to, uh, you know, make the arguments and defense so that so that some of them have been reaching out to me to to talk about how to how to how to talk about some of these issues. Um, but, you know, I think it is the same. It is the same dynamic. And oftentimes I actually kind of, you know, push back against this distinction that, you know, does exist in our law between, you know, a, a migrant or refugee, uh, because, you know, I, I think we're all human beings. And oftentimes our laws make, you know, these very arbitrary distinctions about, you know, why you get protection. If you're if you're fleeing, you know, gangs from El Salvador, you might not get protection. But if you're fleeing because of political opinion from Cuba, you, you, you do. And so I think it's important for us to look at it uh, from a more human rights perspective. It, it tends to be politicized. And, <laughs> and they tend to forget that part of it. All right, Jorge Baron, thank you so much for uh, all of the update on all of this because this, this is constantly changing. And I think a lot of people, what they don't understand are, are, are just how, how some of this works and, and also uh, uh, going beyond the politics and the rhetoric of it all. So that was really what I was hoping we can do today, and I think we did that well. Uh, for more about the uh, immigration debate, go to kcts9.org. Jorge Baro, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for joining us uh, for this edition of KCTS 9's Digital Studios podcast. We're going to have more information about the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project on our website at kcts9.org. I'm Enrique Cerna, and we'll talk more next time.